Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, I ask that we might have receptive hearts tonight so that we might hear your voice and in hearing might grow in wisdom and love of you. We pray these things for your glory. Amen. I heard a sick burn the other day. It went something like this. Mate, you got to sleep with a mirror at the foot of your bed and wake up to yourself. Really helpful, I found. If you're ever needing to put someone in their place, just wake up to yourself, mate. It's beautiful. Probably one of the best things I've heard in my time being in Australia. It's just chef's kiss. Here's another way of putting it. This one a bit higher literature. John Kelvin famously once said, our wisdom insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. Now what Kelvin's saying here is that if we want to access wisdom, that is how to navigate this world wisely, then we need to understand who God is. If we want to understand who God is, then we need a healthy level of self-awareness. In other words, to understand God, we need to understand ourselves and vice versa. To understand ourselves, we must truly understand the God who made us. And this really is where the Bible comes in because one of the great things the Bible does is make us think about ourselves. And here's why. God has given us this book. It's a book written by people like us, about people like us, in order to communicate what he's done for people like us in Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, ultimately, of course, the Bible, the Bible is about what God's done for us in Jesus and how it is we should live in light of the gospel. But even as the Bible proclaims the gospel to us, it holds up a mirror that reflects back to us our own lives, forcing us to reflect on who we are and why, as all of humanity, why it is that we are in desperate need of a savior. Now, understanding this, how it is the Bible works, really helps us better read the Old Testament. And so take 1 Kings, for example. In this book, you're not going to find stories full of great moral examples or heroes to, to aspire to. That's just not how God's history books work. Rather, we find people whose brokenness and flaws and, and decision-making just kind of looks an awful lot like our own. And that's the whole point. That the story of Israel really is our story. These people, this is what we are like. Uh, the classic verse for this uh, is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Uh, over 1 Corinthians, Paul, speaking of Israel's history, he says, now these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. That's why when we read 1 Kings 3 and 4, for example, what we find there is what we're really like, and that is totally inconsistent you are inconsistent, I am inconsistent. It's just, it's who we are as humans. And that's really the big idea of what we see um, in Solomon's life here today. The wisest man on earth, right? Even he was inconsistent in a particular way 
that I reckon we all struggle with. That is the great tension we see in Solomon, whether or not he will listen to God's voice and obey, or, or rather, will his heart be drawn away by competing voices? Will he listen to the Lord and obey or be drawn away? And even though these chapters, I mean, they really do see Solomon performing at his best, the narrative is still littered with these dark undertones of his inconsistency. It's something often hard to catch this. Reading Old Testament narrative, it can be quite tricky. So, for example, I, I went to the symphony last weekend. Before the orchestra performed Shostakovich's Symphony Number no. 9, the conductor, she turns to the crowd, she unpacks the different movements, tells us what to listen out for, notes of victory, moments of irony, gives us the background to the composition, so that when they performed the piece, we were better equipped to listen out for these themes. And in, from my point of view, we're able to enjoy it all the more. It was a richer experience. Here's the problem, though. It's often not like that with Old Testament narrative. That is, it's rare for the narrator to just halt the story and say, oh, by the way, that thing that Solomon did over there, yeah, that was exceedingly stupid. I mean, sometimes we get that. Sometimes we'll get these little phrases like, this pleased the Lord. We'll see one tonight. But often the storytellers will just tell the story and let the story itself do all the heavy lifting. So if we're, like, if you're not used to reading the Bible, or if we're prone to thinking that the characters in the Bible, they just have to be the good guys, and therefore we're just quite reluctant to admit uh, or believe that they ever really stuff things up. Or even worse, if we think the Bible's actually endorsing the behavior that it reports on, then we're going to miss the entire point of the story. We're, like for here, like this story tonight, we're never going to be able to pick up on all these subtle changes of tempo and mood, the shifts in atmosphere, the implied praise and criticism of Solomon. Because that's really how these chapters make their point, that Solomon, this dude is just made of the same stuff as you and me. We're all inconsistent. Yeah? But if we want to grow in wisdom, if we want to learn how to navigate the world in a wise way, then we need to see where Solomon gets it right and where he gets it wrong, and ultimately how Solomon's life makes way for the perfect wisdom of our God to enter into our world. That's a bit of an overview of the narrative. Let's get stuck into it. Here's where I want to begin. Let's try to sift out some of Solomon's notes of victory, our first movement, his notes of victory, because we really do see some magnificent highlights in this reel. For example, 1 Kings 3 verse 3, we read that Solomon loved the Lord. Solomon, he loved the Lord by walking in the statutes of his father David. You can't really get higher praise than that. In fact, in the whole Old Testament, no one's really described in quite those terms. Like, yes, there were leaders who followed the Lord or those who were passionate about what God was passionate about, but Solomon, he loves the Lord and he obeys him, which positively sets us up for that next famous scene when God appears to Solomon in a dream, verse 5, and he, say, he basically says to him, ask me for whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Now, at first, it looks like Solomon fumbles this one because everybody knows that the first thing you wish for is what? Infinite wishes. I mean, come on, Saul. It's, anyway, but actually, this is kind of one of those hypothetical moments that we like to sort of play. You know, if you really could ask for anything, what would you ask for? I mean, Solomon, he's got enough self-awareness, doesn't he, to know that he's out of depth, out of his depth as a king. 
And so in verse 9, he's, he asks for this, give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who's able to judge this great people of yours? It's just a fantastic request. It's a godly request. In one of those rare biblical moments, we find it's the right request. It gets God's stamp of approval, verse 10. Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. All right, gold star, Solomon. Moving to our next scene in the highlights reel, we're given that heart-wrenching story that serves then as an illustration, an example of Solomon's wisdom, how it is it was exercised in his rule. Two women, these two women come to him. They're almost certainly uh, prostitutes, which says a lot about the current state of Israel, might I add. That is, it's likely that both these women had lost their husbands at some point and therefore lost any um, social security in the world. And instead of being supported by God's people, it appears they've had to turn to sex work to make a living. So you've got these two vulnerable women who both bring equally vulnerable children into the world, living under the same roof, and one of the newborns die, which starts an argument over whose baby it truly was. But not only does Solomon display great wisdom in his ruling, he acts with real integrity, seeking justice for the disadvantaged, the marginalized members of his society. And when he makes his bold decision, he sees, he sees past two prostitutes to two grieving mothers. In fact, at the end of verse 28, we're told that God's wisdom was in him to carry out justice. This is all very, very positive. In fact, this, this, is, this is Messiah territory, truth be told. Um, for example, Isaiah 11, verse 3 and 4, speaking of the anticipated Messiah, the prophet says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. I mean, Solomon, he's really kicking goals here. And then finally, as king, chapter 4 makes it very clear that Solomon is an admin extraordinaire. I mean, Christy and Tony would kill to have him on their build team. Solomon, he sets up a simple and an effective administration with the end result in 4 verse 20, making it clear, well, Solomon actually plays a key role in the promises made to Abraham being fulfilled in a way that Israel's not really experienced yet. So listen to this, 4 verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. Right, Genesis 12 language. They're eating, drinking, and rejoicing. It's a picture of peace and prosperity. Verse 25 basically just means everybody's enjoying peace from every side. And to sum up this whole section on Solomon's rise, the very, very end bit of chapter 4, Solomon is praised as the ultimate wise man who's used by God to bring, a bless to, bring blessing to the nations just as God had promised to Abraham. So verse 34, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, all the kings of the earth who'd heard of his wisdom. Okay, now to go back to our um, symphony analogy, this first movement, it's all light and lilting melodies. We're in the realm of piccolos and violins and glockenspiels. But the second movement introduces notes of dissonance, clanging cymbals, thumping double basses, brings us to Solomon's sounds of irony. His sounds of irony are a second movement. The very first sentence in our chapter strikes a dark chord in verse 1, chapter 3. Solomon, 
makes an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, by marrying Pharaoh's daughter, and Solomon brings her to the city of David. Never in the Old Testament is going to Egypt, marrying an Egyptian, or even fraternizing with Egyptians a good thing. It just never ends well. In fact, the whole point of the Exodus was to get God's people out of Egypt and away from the pharaohs that were persecuting them. And now by marrying Pharaoh's daughter, which was, it was just a, it's just a political move, by the way, Solomon, he's in effect bringing Egypt back to Israel. He's reversing the redemptive ending of the Exodus. Add to that in the very same verse, Solomon seems more interested in building his own house before building the Lord's house, and things are starting to sound a bit ominous. Or how about this? In the same sentence we're told, where we're told about the Lord's temple and Solomon's love for the Lord, the writer also says this. He says, however, the people were sacrificing on the high places. And yes, Solomon loved the Lord. However, he also sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. You can't really find a section of kings with more caveats in such a short space. Yes, Solomon loves the Lord, but he also sits a bit loosely when it comes to worshiping at the high places, which is where the pagans went to offer their sacrifices to, to their gods. It's not full-blown idolatry for Solomon. I mean, not yet, at least. He still goes there to worship the Lord, to worship Yahweh, but eventually it will become that for him. We get those first notes sounded here. Uh, foreign wives, now foreign worship. It's not looking very good for our model Israelite, is it? And yes, Solomon, the build pastor, was an efficient administrator, but 4 verse 22 to 28 I mean, they don't shy away from the fact that it meant Solomon and his mates were afforded the sort of luxe lifestyle they'd grown accustomed to. Sort of like one of those, um, you know, real housewives of Beverly Hills moments. It's the real house husbands of Jerusalem or something. There was a joke in there. I still haven't found it yet. But it's, it's in there. It's in there. And just in case you missed it, Solomon, he had 40,000 horses and 12,000 horsemen. And at this point... The alarm bells of Deuteronomy 17 should be ringing in our ears. When Moses sort of warns the people, Israel, before going into the promised land about their king, he says, however, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses, for the Lord has told you you're never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. It's dripping with irony, isn't it? But why? Why, why, should, why shouldn't the king do that? The reason is because the kings of the world find their security in money and marriage and military might, whereas Israel's kings are meant to find their security in God alone. And then finally, the last clanging symbol. Despite being an admin extraordinaire, Solomon does establish this rather dodgy department, the Ministry of Forced Labor, 4 verse 6. That phrase, forced labor, it's the same one used for Israelite slavery in Exodus 1. It sort of begs the question, will Solomon go the way of Pharaoh himself and force Israelites, God's own people, to build his royal projects? All right, can you hear the mood shifting? Can you sort of catch the two competing tunes playing simultaneously one on top of the other? These sort of sounds of both light and darkness. But in setting up this tension, Solomon's words do give us an insight into what godly wisdom looks like, and therefore how it is we might be pursuing this for ourselves as well. 
Uh, let's jump back a little bit and take a quick look at that famous conversation in verse 9. What does Solomon ask for? He asks for a receptive heart. What does that mean? It means to have a listening heart, a heart that listens to God's voice. But why? Why do we need a listening heart? Well, the answer is found in the very next phrase, so that we might be able to discern between good and evil. And so, what is wisdom? The answer, I think, at least from this passage, is suggesting that wisdom is the ability to listen to God's voice in order to discern between good and evil and then choose good. Listening to God's voice so we can discern between what is right, what is wrong, what's good and evil, and then choose good. Right? Solomon's words, they sort of get to the heart of true wisdom. It's all about having a listening heart that submits all of our thoughts and feelings to God's way of thinking and feeling. But here's the rub. Even though these chapters find Israel really enjoying the peace and blessing of living under Solomon's wisdom, it doesn't last long. It's not going to take many weeks for us to show you how Solomon's heart is ultimately led away by competing voices. He rejects God's word and God's ways, and as a result, God's people are kicked out of the promised land, sent into exile. Which sets up the Bible's big story, pushes us forward to look for another wise man, another king, someone who might come and rescue all of us from exile, uh, from spiritual exile. One who's going to perfectly listen to the Lord's words, walk in his ways, and ultimately defeat evil with good. And it pushes us forward in the story all the way up to the Gospels, where we meet Jesus, the truly wise one, the King of Kings. When John's Gospel introduces us to Jesus, he begins at the very beginning of time. He uses creation language to say in John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, oh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, Jesus didn't just listen to God's voice. He is God's voice. Jesus is God's very word, wisdom incarnate. And as God's very word, it means he lived his life in perfect harmony with his Father's will. The great example of this is the night before Jesus goes to the cross for sin that's not his own. We find him in a garden, Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to take on the sin of the world, and he, and he begins feeling the justice against that sin. And so he kneels before his Father in heaven and he says to his Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then submitting to God's will, Jesus takes his way of thinking and feeling and submits it to his Father as he offers up himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sin, our inconsistency, our failure to listen to God's voice. And in so doing, he destroys evil once and for all, through the ultimate act of good, which is sacrificial love. And so for us, as we think about how it is we might have access to wisdom from above, I, I find it curious, for some reason, 
We are obsessed with this idea that the world is divided into two halves. You got the good guys and you got the bad guys. And we say things like, oh, don't, don't, don't worry. He, he's one of the good ones, right? They're, they're one of the good ones. Whether thinking about you know, our coworkers or friends or neighbors or even our church family here, we categorize people based on that sort of like good, bad. It's unhelpful at best and probably a disaster waiting to happen at its worst because even the best of us is inconsistent. No matter how wise we may be, we do not lose the capacity to make dumb decisions. No matter how selfless we may be, we do not lose the ability to be selfish. I mean, why do you think the writer of One Kings goes to such great lengths to take us all through this? Why so much detail about good Solomon and bad Solomon? I think it's to drill into our heads that we are all like this. Even the most smartest, wisest, most privileged, or even educated among us, we're inconsistent. We're stupid. We're foolish. Perhaps the world's most famous lion, Aslan, he puts it like this, C.S. Lewis' book, Prince Caspian. You come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, says Aslan, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Why? It's not because some of us do great things and some of us do terrible things. It's because we all do a mixture of both. We are all inconsistent. But that really is the key to wisdom, isn't it? Do you want to grow in wisdom? And it begins by realizing that we don't always act wisely. That we don't actually have it in us to pull this off for ourselves. Wisdom begins with that healthy dose of self-awareness to accept that sometimes we are just downright fools. But then wisdom grows when we gain a healthy view of who God is, what he's done for us in Christ, and that includes his desire to grant us wisdom from above, even despite our stupidity. See, Solomon, he's not the only one who gets this offer of wisdom on tap. In Jesus, God lets his wisdom flow unrestricted from the wellspring of life himself. Uh, James, Jesus' own brother, more or less says the same thing at the opening of his letter, James uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. It really does take a lifetime, I think, to wrap our heads and hearts around the fact that God treats us so much better than we deserve. Despite our foolish hearts, he hands out wisdom generously without any complaint, right? No, sorry, no sarcasm, just wisdom on tap. It really is a marvelous promise. Although I'm wondering if, when I read that out, perhaps maybe the beauty of the promise was just dampened a little bit by that proviso that you have to ask in faith without doubting as if the sincerity of your request determines the portion of wisdom you receive. It's not so, thankfully. Rather, the good news is that asking in faith here simply means trusting the person who's making the promise. It's Jesus, isn't it? 
Jesus himself is the perfect wisdom of our God. He himself has lived the perfectly wise life. He himself catches us up into himself so that whatever is true of Jesus is true of you. And when we place our life in Christ's hands, God's wellspring of wisdom is made available to us through his Holy Spirit. As Christ's Spirit takes the very words of God himself and massages them into our heart, transforming us from the inside out so that our so that our inner life and our outer life are truly joined together. Right? That's true wisdom, isn't it? And so as we wrap up, knowledge of self, you are not as unwise as you could be, but you're probably exceedingly more foolish than you'd care to admit. Knowledge of God. Thankfully, in Christ Jesus, God treats us exceedingly better than we deserve. And wisdom begins, I think, by holding those two truths together. But how can we tell? How do we know whether or not we're being foolish in either our knowledge of self or our knowledge of God? I think maybe it comes down to something like this. When you sin, how do you view both yourself and God in relation to your sin? Here's what I mean by that. Some of us here, we don't really take much time to reflect on how sinful we are, and I get that. It's not comfortable. Sometimes it's downright scary. We often don't take the time to ponder how our sin affects those around us, like, sure, we know sometimes, absolutely, yes, we stuff up, but we're, 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 we're not as bad as, as so-and-so over there that we know. And so we just sort of sit lightly with our sin. We don't really think it's a big deal. You know, we're comfortable with keeping avenues of sinful behavior open that we, that we just kind of keep going back to when we're stressed or angry, feeling celebratory or anxious. We just keep those doors open that are always there for us. We don't really stop to think twice before walking through them. It's foolishness. It's what, the, it's, what the, it's what the Bible calls foolishness. Wisdom here looks like waking up to yourself. Just acknowledging that your sin does have very real consequences, not least of which that our sin grieves God's very heart. I think anyone would agree that in any relationship, if you go into a situation intentionally causing grief, you'd say that there's, at least there's a disconnect there, wouldn't you? would say that something isn't quite right. But on the other hand, when you sin, do you think God is up in heaven just waiting to pounce on you? Right? Just waiting to chuck some lightning bolts your way, to jump up and down with glee, just say, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. It was only a matter of time. Because far from it. I mean, as we saw a few weeks ago in our holiday series, when we sin or stuff up our lives, God actually moves closer to us in those moments, far from causing Christ's retreat. Our brokenness and failures and inconsistencies actually what motivates God all the more to move toward us in love. So do you see how both sitting too lightly with our sin or judging God too harshly when we do sin draws our hearts away from God. And that's why we need to constantly be reminding one another of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this simple truth that says we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, 
get more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. That's how wisdom grows. That's how we maintain a listening heart that submits its thoughts and its feelings to God's words and God's ways. So when we continually keep on bringing our hearts back to the gospel, back to Jesus, the source of all wisdom. And look, I know for myself, those times that I am foolish, it's not because I don't know what God's voice sounds like. It's not because I don't know what God's word says. It's just that I don't want to listen. I'm drawn away by competing voices that cause me to doubt that God's words and ways actually do lead to my good, to my pleasure, to my happiness. I give in to those narratives that say I'm missing out by not engaging with the things that uh, those around me are engaging in. That's why I need you lot here to constantly be reminding me of the beauty and truth of the gospel. This message of the cross that appears utterly foolish by the world's standards, but is actually, in fact, the most ultimate display of wisdom. As Gary Miller says, the principal at Queensland Theological College, as Gary Miller says, and we'll end with this, when we see what God does for us in Jesus, suddenly it becomes clear not only how God can treat us as if our sins don't exist, but also how God makes it possible for really foolish people like us to be wise. Let's pray. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we truly are more foolish than we would probably care to admit. And yet you do not judge us in our foolishness. You do not punish us for our inconsistency. You do not mock us for our brokenness. The opposite. You cover us with your grace. Lord, I pray, nevertheless, that we would strive to grow in wisdom, that in the strength of your Holy Spirit, you'd give us the ability to walk in step with your Spirit so that our inner lives the ones that confess you as Lord would be joined together, matched up with our outer lives, our outward expression of how we live our life. Lord, I pray that as we grow in wisdom, we would constantly be reminding one another here in this room tonight of the beauty and truth of your gospel. This message that does seem utterly foolish and yet causes our hearts to rejoice as we come before you as inconsistently broken people who find wholeness and meaning and new humanity in your son, Jesus. We pray all these things for your glory. Amen.